Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Read Smart, the official podcast of the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. My name is Toby Mundy and I'm the director of the prize, taking over hosting duties today from our usual host, Razia Iqbal. This podcast is, as ever, generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. The Read Smart podcast talks to some of the world's leading writers and publishers to explore the world of non-fiction publishing, as well as providing a behind-the-scenes insight into this year's prize journey. The winner of the 2021 Bailey Gifford Prize will be announced on the 16th of November this year. For the last 22 years, the Bailey Gifford Prize has rewarded the very best in non-fiction writing, spanning fields as diverse as history, current affairs, politics, science, sport, travel, biography, autobiography and the arts. In the run-up to the winner's announcement next month, I'll be in conversation with our six shortlisted authors, asking them about their lives and motivations, enthusiasms, and the reasons why they wrote their shortlisted book. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Cal Flynn. Cal is an author and journalist from the Highlands of Scotland. Her first highly acclaimed book, Thicker Than Water, dealt with the colonisation of Australia and the question of inherited guilt. Her current book, shortlisted for this year's Bailey Gifford Prize, is Islands of Abandonment, Life, in a post-human landscape. Welcome, Cal, to the podcast. Hello, and thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. So there's a huge amount to talk about, and we don't have that much time. So at one point you say um, that this book is about the ecology and psychology of abandoned places. The ecology and psychology of abandoned places. Can you just sort of explain that phrase and where the idea for this book emerged from, how it, how it was born? That's right. So uh, the book moves from thir- uh, between 13 different locations around the world, um, all of which have been abandoned by people for decades at a time. And I suppose what I'm looking at, um, largely I'm looking at the, the sort of recovery and regeneration of, of nature in our absence, but I'm also looking at how these places make us feel. And uh, sometimes that might be um, they, they fill us with fear and, and a sort of repulsion, but, but equally an opposite. They also sort of thrill us. And many of us feel ourselves very drawn to abandoned places and ruins. Um, so I suppose I'm, I'm trying to get that sense of what it's like to move through the landscape in, in these eerie and, and sometimes desolate places. And where did the idea for the book come from? I do quite a lot of writing about, I suppose, nature and the environment, but I'm very interested in contested landscapes where we have these sort of ethical questions um, or perhaps they've got sort of troubled histories. Um, I think that that makes them interesting to write about and gives you something sort of meaty at the heart of it. Um, But the idea for this book specifically, I think, grew out of a trip to the Slate Islands, which are off Argyll on the west coast of Scotland. They're not actually in the book, but this is, I think, where I can trace my thinking on this subject um, to the the starting point. Um, I went there because I had heard from a local artist how beautiful these Slate Islands were, this sort of post-industrial landscape where there were deep slate quarries which have now been flooded with seawater and they take on a strange color um, because of impurities in the rock so they look like pantone palettes of turquoise and cyan and all sorts of strange colors Mm. and so I went there because I heard it was very beautiful and you could swim there and that got me thinking I I suppose about the aesthetics of the post-industrial you know how ruined landscapes can actually be weirdly beautiful and while I was there they were covered in brambles there were small birds there were small mammals and all sorts of things and I began to see how they could also be ecologically interesting and even valuable once more. I have to confess I 
I sort of resisted this book, not because it's not brilliantly written, because it really is, I think, brilliantly written, nor because it isn't incredibly bold and original, because it's those two things too. But I kind of, I was worried that it was going to be, um, in the words of, I think, Samuel Beckett, too much like staring at the sun. It sort of latches onto our unconscious fears in some funny way. I had a similar problem with The Road by Cormac McCarthy. But what surprised and thrilled me about the book was I was totally engrossed in it, and that there is this undercurrent of hope and optimism, even though, of course, you don't let human beings off the hook for the massive ecological damage that they've wrought. Did you did you know you were going to feel quietly, that you were going to find traces of optimism at the end of this story? Or did that come up as part of the process of creating the book? I think that was probably the initial spark. Um, just, just seeing that flash of beauty in the Slate Islands made me think about how valuable places need not um, appear valuable in, in any traditional sense. Um, you know, the, the picturesque landscape is not necessarily going to be the most ecologically diverse. And in fact, you know, you just look at the controversy over landscapes like the, the Lake District to see that or, or even my native highlands. Um, so I think probably it was that tension between the, the beauty or the value and their apparent uselessness or, or, or lack of value or desolation that initially sparked the book itself. And so I think perhaps it's a temperamental thing in me looking for looking for an optimistic side, or perhaps that's just where the, I don't know, where the, what the idea was to begin with, if that makes sense. Ah, absolutely. I thought also there's something, and I, I sense perhaps as a reader, although maybe I'm projecting my own response to the book onto it, that the book also somehow speaks to sort of childish fears and fantasies about being somewhere after all the adults have gone, of breaking into deserted places, of getting lost in the forest. Did you... Did you have? I mean, how did some of these places make you make you feel? Yeah, I think that's a really good way of of thinking about it. That sort of like universal feeling of unease or or loneliness or or discomfort. And excitement, though. excitement as well, though forbidden places also. Yeah, that's right. The feeling of being in in somewhere you're not really meant to be, and I, I think that's something that I wrestled with a lot. You know, uh, I, it's easy, I think, to explain sort of physical fears about the landscapes, although you can. You can act against that. Yeah, I, I think I'm quite a cautious person when it comes to sort of exploring these places. But um, the psychological side of it was what really struck me and what became a much larger part to the narrative than I expected it to at the outset. This that feeling of being in the wrong place, of sort of breaking rules to get there. Um, that really touches something quite powerful inside us. And I, I think from from the response to the book that it must be fairly universal. Some of the places are pretty scary, aren't they? I mean, the... Um... Your American road trip takes you into 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 extraordinary places. How did you how did you plan that? Did you know where you were going to go? You obviously knew where you were going to go in America, but how did you devise your itinerary for your American the American sections of the book? So with those ones, I tended to um, have a good sense about where I would try to go to. But I think uh, abandoned places, by their nature, they're often ephemeral, or you don't know exactly what their status will be when you get there. So there were a few times I tried to go places and perhaps they'd been fenced off or even demolished. Um, so you have to go, I think, with an, an open mind to, to places like this and just see what happens when you get there. Um, I suppose the stories that I couldn't anticipate were the human stories particularly. So, um, for example, in Patterson in New Jersey, I'd um, met with an 
urban explorer who is local and, and really knows the area. Um, and so he took me into this vast sort of industrial complex at the heart of the city. And we were exploring there and we banged into a guy who was just hanging out in the, the ruins of these old mills. And it was almost as if he'd been waiting to tell us his life story. You know, he launched into it the second we met him. And then he he gave us a sort of guided tour of the place. And Slab City was a little bit like that as well. Um, so this is a, a quite anarchic settlement or encampment on an abandoned military base in the south of California in the middle of the desert. It's quite an extreme environment for anyone to live in, especially for these people who are living entirely off grid. And again, you know, perhaps it's something to do with meeting people in these places just by the fact that you are there means you have something in common, even if it's not obvious. And that tends to spark conversations and people share things with you. And those are the moments that I really felt you've just got to go there and see what happens and, and trust in serendipity. You don't necessarily know that you'll meet anyone, but often you do. And uh, that's what I really enjoy about sort of traveling and, and doing my research in person. So tell us a bit more about Slab City, because Slab City and indeed the Patterson chapters, I, I've made a really indelible impression. I mean, the whole book did, but they in particular made an indelible impression. But tell us a little bit about 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 Slab City, that, that there is that there's a community there, isn't there, in this in this this deserted place? That's right. It's a, a really mishmash of people who have settled there, um, sort of hippies, dropouts, um, often people who are fleeing the police for one reason or another, or they may not be able to go home. Sometimes it's people who have made sort of being nomadic part of their lifestyle. In the winter, when the desert is much more um, hospitable, I suppose, to human life, um, lots of people known as snowbirds come down in their RVs. This is often retired people in America. It's a big community of people who move around. But during the summer when I was there, it's sort of the, the, the diehard Slab City people. They call themselves Slabbers. And it's got this real Mad Max vibe. You know, everything is cobbled out of... Um, trash, as they call it, stuff that they've um, found in the desert, scavenged tires, bits of wire, boards, and so on. And um, it's got a real post-apocalyptic vibe. Well, I mean, well, you I, convey it brilliantly. How big is this place? I mean, I think probably while I was there, a, a few hundred people, and then that might balloon in winter to maybe a couple of thousand, if you include the people who are pitched up in their own RVs. It's got its own community. You know, there's a there's a community library. There's a, a bar that was actually built by a film crew many years ago, but it's been kept on by the community. And um, it's just a it's a very strange place, but it's a very kind of raw place to live. You know, it, it I think it sort of takes a layer of skin off and you relate to each other very directly, um, which I did also find quite frightening. I, I think about Slab City a lot, the way that it thrilled me, but also I was very nervous while I was there you know you really have to look after yourself there's a lot of violence off and on there and there are a, a lot of drugs and there's weapons around you know people sort of freely carrying around guns and all sorts of things a guy with a machete and so on so I don't know it was it's just a very raw existence in Slab City. Um, and what about the the more natural landscapes I mean the, the places where there were even fewer humans tell us tell us about Chernobyl for example what what's happening I mean, it's it's been relatively well reported, but you write about it brilliantly about what's happened in and around Chernobyl since the disaster, the nuclear disaster. Yeah, absolutely. So the exclusion zone around the um, reactor is uh, roughly the size of, say, Cornwall. 
Um, and it contains not only the city of Pripyat and, and also the town of Chernobyl, but around 200 smaller villages, which were extremely rural and mainly sort of wooden built um, farmhouses and, and village houses. Um, so it's this very varied large area, um, which has now become very forested um, and is almost entirely deserted. And so you find a returning of things like wolves, sevenfold return of wolves, black bears um, returned there for the first time in more than a century. Um, lots of different species are popping up there and finding it a stronghold in, you know, quite developed continent of Europe. Um, so it's not that the radiation does them any benefit, of course, you know, they, they are definitely impacted. And, and there have been a number of studies showing that there is a negative impact on, on various species of various kinds. But the, the trade-off, I suppose, is this lack of human disturbance. If we're not there, many species find themselves, I suppose, the freedom to exist in a way that they can't elsewhere. And so you find if they can survive long enough to breed, then you might actually get very large populations of animals, even though that they also have this sort of detracting effect of, of radiation. And the reforesting effects that you describe in Chernobyl are happening in other places as well, aren't they? But I feel absolutely fascinating. Absolutely. I, the place that I went to, uh, I went to Estonia to look at specifically former USSR um, collective farmland, because you do find this across much of the former Soviet Union. Um, when the system collapsed, this farmland just fell into disuse because of the enormous collective farms are no longer sort of workable in a capitalist society. But many people who had been farmers originally didn't want to take the land back on or they couldn't be traced and so on. So there's this huge amount of land which has essentially just been left to its own devices. And it's very slowly um, in many parts of, of that farmer country turning into forest. Now, this depends a lot on the climate and, and the soil and so on. But in Estonia, you see huge growth of forests of various kinds. Um, largely, it starts with broadleaf forest, quite sort of loose and like a wooded meadow almost kind of thing. And then um, over time, the, the conifers come to the fore and then it becomes very dense and dark. So in Estonia, they actually worry that, you know, that maybe having all of this dark forest might not be a wonderful thing. So some of them are are trying to pop into these forests to, to cut down some trees and so on. But I think it's actually a, a wonderful problem to have. What is happening is there's this, this huge amount of carbon sequestration happening across the whole of the former Soviet Union. And this is something that we see across many countries in the world today. So we see this in, in China, in, in lots of parts of South America, in huge parts of Europe, actually, um, where we see an increasingly urbanized population. So people are going into the cities. Also, many developed countries are actually losing population now. Um, so we see the rural population falling, lots of farmland falling into, into disuse, and then forests growing up and what is, I suppose, marginal farmland, I think you would call that. That happened in the 19th century and 20th century in parts of America as well. So if you go to New England and you enjoy the beautiful autumnal foliage this time of year, actually, these are almost entirely new forests that have grown up during the 20th century there just because farmers moved to the Midwest. So you can see how quickly and thickly forests can, can regrow on land should we sort of step aside and leave it to it. Am I right to think that there are some strange things happening in Japan as their population falls precipitously as well? Is that That's right, isn't it? That's absolutely right. I mean, uh, Japan's kind of ahead of the curve. Um, they're Japan and, and South Korea. They're really seeing a, a 
big contracting in the birth rate. And in Japan, one in eight properties is already disused, often derelict. They call them ghost houses, akia. Um, and that is forecast to fall to a third of all housing stock by 2049. So that is, you know, just an enormous amount of abandoned and increasingly derelict buildings that that are sort of around, especially in in rural communities. And often the ownership can be very difficult to trace. So that's a that's a problem that Japan is struggling with at the moment. And I imagine most developed countries will probably have to deal with in the next few decades. And that's sort of it is sort of grounds for optimism as well, isn't it, I guess? Yes, I think so. I mean, there's different ways of looking at it. Um, so from a social point of view, I think we are allowed to grieve the loss of rural communities and the rural way of life. From an environmental point of view, this abandoned and, and often sort of self-willed land, as I come to think about it, is probably a very good thing because it allows for carbon sinking, it allows for... In- increased biodiversity Um, so you get these wild feral forests or even feral grasslands because grasslands are very good as well um, that that pop up and the species assemblages there can be very weird you know it's just whatever happens to fall there and and find a hold Um, so they're not often valued Um, people talk about degraded landscapes or degraded forests that kind of thing but I think that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have value in and of themselves and over time they increasingly become um, old forests you know that's just a just a function of the passage of time and they become increasingly valuable Um, but I don't know I think we do need to think about how we value places like this and Mm. not look at a scrap of abandoned land which has got some scrubby little bushes on it and think oh this is this is terrible we've got to do something about it you know maybe clear it and build on it because actually these places have enormous value in themselves and I think that ecology and conservation is catching up with that and has been sort of realizing the the value of these places over the last decade or so. Talking of feral I'm very I was very struck by the feral cows I like them a lot um can you tell us a little the story of the the uh, the Swona cows, please? Yes, absolutely. So this is quite a, a local story to me now that I live in the Orkney Islands. Um, so there's an island between the Orkney Islands and the north coast of Scotland called Swona. In fact, there are two abandoned islands, one called Swona and one called Stroma. Uh, I was interested in Swona particularly because there is a herd of feral cattle living on this island, Um, not a large herd, I think at the moment it's around 15 animals, Um, but these descend from cattle that were set loose by the last inhabitants of Swona. Essentially, they were a brother and sister, increasingly elderly, and they were brought off the island by family who live on Orkney. And uh, they decided to leave the cattle in the hope that they'd be able to return or perhaps take the cattle off at a later date. But the cattle have been left pretty much to their own devices now for decades. Mm. It was sort of thought that they, they might die out, that they might starve perhaps in a bad winter. It's very difficult climate there. There's not much shelter. But what's happened is that the cattle have lived and bred and they take shelter in some of the abandoned buildings. And uh, they have sort of reverted to a, a strange kind of behavior that if you know domestic cattle, you might not totally recognize it because they live in a mixed herd Um I thought they were behaving a bit more like wild horses, say, or, or wild deer, you know, they, the males, the bulls will fight and sometimes sort of exclude each other from the herd. And then they just have to live separately on this tiny island on a tiny headland. So it's a very strange existence for these cattle. But the fact that they've survived, I don't know, it made me think a bit about, you know, what needs to happen to feral animals before we consider them wild again. Because I think some people don't believe that 
um, once domesticated animals will ever be wild. Um, but to me, they're living wild, they're surviving wild, they're certainly not getting very much help from humans. To me, they're certainly borderline wild already. And I, I just thought that was an interesting sort of maybe a, a, a philosophical question about what could happen to domestic breeds that we've created. You know, what happens if we leave them? When when do they ever revert to the, the true wild? Um, yeah, I talk, I mean, the book opens with the, the, this awful 16th century experiment on a pair of baby twins and their no, uh, mute nursemaid. I think sent to the deserted island of Inchkeith, I think, isn't it? That's right, yes. In an attempt to discover if they would start, what, naturally speaking, the language of the Garden of Eden, I think, isn't it? That's right, the, the sort of prelapsarian language of God, I think. And the trial became known as the Forbidden Experiment, didn't it, because of its sort of cruelty and, and um, inhumanity. But you say at the end of the book that the places you visited have also been the sites of forbidden experiments. I thought that was really interesting and arresting. Could you tell us a bit more about, about that phrase and that idea? Yes, absolutely. I mean, people said that about these baby children. I think because it is a it's a cruel thing to do um, to to take children away, I suppose, from their families and and from human society more generally. And it's also something that cannot be reverted. So these children would likely have been damaged for the rest of their life. Um, we know that that children who grow up in in, in bad circumstances often are deeply impacted forever. Um, and I think that's how I became, that's how I started to see these landscapes that I was writing about, that it would be completely immoral to bring these situations about on purpose, especially places like Chernobyl um, or other places which have been badly polluted with with heavy metals or persistent organic pollutants. Um, However, the fact that they do exist does mean that we can learn a great deal about natural regeneration, natural recovery, and what happens you know, after after such damage has been done. Um, I don't think we should make these places on purpose, but I do think we should study them and learn from them and, and understand how we can more easily coexist with the natural world. And when does it become a good thing that we step back and allow nature to, to regenerate and, and recover on its own? I do feel very strongly, having studied these places, that when it comes to conservation, we need to be very careful about the most interventionist methods, partly because in the past um, we might um, create ill situations that we did not foresee. You know, you have this sort of the the force of unintended consequences. Mm. And also, I think because the longer we leave ecosystems, the the faster they can fall into a sort of steady state or equilibrium and, and find a way of existing that don't constantly need humans to prop them up. Um, and that might be a very sort of low effort way of of acting, enacting conservation. Um, so I think we can learn a great deal from them and also about the limits of of human power, I suppose. Hmm. This is a sort I mean, I'm, I was very I wondered because the, I wondered about the effects of this trip, this road trip, this 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 extended journey on you. How, how did it how have you been changed by the experience of writing this book? Oh, that's a really interesting question because it is it's always quite difficult, I think, to to know how yourself has been changed. But um one thing I've noticed is oh well I just notice these places around everywhere. You know, that um I I think you can walk through a city and be completely unaware of all these little pockets of wildness that exist alongside us all the time. 
But the second you start paying attention to them, you realize they're everywhere. So an island of abandonment doesn't need to be an enormous exclusion zone the side of, size of a county. It can also be, you know, a derelict car park or a building that has fallen down and been left for decades at a time. And you'll find even in the busiest of cities, there are scraps of land like this. Um, so people are interested in, well, people talk about the value of things like road verges and so on. These are often almost like time capsules of, of species that are no longer able to exist anywhere else. And it's just because these are scraps of land allowed to exist on their own devices. You know, we are not constantly fiddling with them. And I, I think that's one thing that I've really noticed in myself is just seeing the other wild species existing around us all the time and not feeling like uh, we, you know, there is a, a sort of competition between us and other species all the time. And the second we step back, other species step into the mix. And so I find that quite reassuring, actually, of, mm. of thinking of myself and, and all other humans existing in a matrix like this with, with other species. I found myself thinking as I was reading the book of that very famous and overused quote by William Gibson that the future is already here. It's just not very evenly distributed. <laughs> I mean, did, did, you, did you feel that you'd been, you know, that you'd... You, you, that you'd done a time tra time travel into the future and back again. That's I, I wondered if you felt like that. It feels a little bit like that, particularly in Slab City and places like that, which are so sort of Mad Max-ish in their qualities. Yes, absolutely. I mean, Slab City particularly felt familiar almost because of these post-apocalyptic visions that we have in popular culture. But I, I think definitely almost more so in a place like Chernobyl or in Montserrat mm. when there were these normal situations that had become entirely overgrown. So in, in Montserrat, I went to the former capital, Plymouth, um, the centre of that town, which was once a very sort of beautiful port full of uh, notable um, colonial architecture. Mm. It's all been flooded with um, a type of mud uh, made from ash during pyroclastic flows. But the suburbs were the bit that really hung with me. So these buildings have not been subsumed by ash. But instead, they'd been grown over by sort of jungle plants. And I found bats roosting in a mm -hmm. church. And, you know, I went into a, a former hotel where the old swimming pool had filled with ash and uh, trees and ferns and so on were growing in it. And I think that was very strange. I, I sort of still dream about those places of existing and you know the ruins of today because the the architecture is not so different to to what we live in now absolutely does it make, does it just out of interest does it make you feel special going into those places in the sense that you go to places that hardly anyone has ever been to i was thinking about that childish feeling again yes i think so or, or you feel very lucky because lucky, you get that yeah. sense of being a survivor right oh. <laughs> you, you you feel that sense of being one of the last people walking on earth oh. And I think that that makes you feel very fond of the earth and very lucky and, and, and sort of desperate to try and do it better next time. And I think that's why so many of us are, are drawn to those post-apocalyptic movies. And I think that that is what those locations made me feel like. And I, I kept sort of again and again returning to sort of, I don't know, sci-fi visions and so on, because that's the, the closest reference point that I had for many of the, the sites that I went to. You convey that feeling brilliantly. You evoke, it was, it was evoked completely very strongly in me when I was reading the book. I mean, really, really well. I just out of curiosity, actually, I was wondering if if there was a sort of feedback loop. If if some of the aesthetic of a place like Slab City, for example, was because they'd actually seen Mad Max, so there was a sort of that their version of the future was conditioned to some extent by popular culture representations of a post-apocalyptic world. Yes, and I I think certainly in in Slab City, it's sort of semi-knowing. 
<laughs> you know, it's it's partly from necessity. You know, genuinely, a lot of the people who live there don't have any money at all, or they might be living on tiny sort of monthly allowances. A, a lot of people there were living on disability allowance actually, and had gone there because they were suffering addictions from to to painkillers. Mm. Um, and so people really don't have very much money, and they're living in an extreme environment. So that that sort of sense of building from trash is part partly aesthetic um and partly because they have to um but i think the the aesthetic allows them to have a sort of sense of pride in their existence and a sense of of doing something quite cool you know there's a lot mm. of art there which is amazing there's a really really fantastic sculpture garden called east jesus um and all of this is built from sort of cans and and just bottle caps and anything that's been scavenged from the desert and i think that that also is very inspiring it does make people feel like they might be building something beautiful out of the the ruins of a civilization that has done them particularly very ill Yes, and that even in such a pared-down existence that culture and art continues to exist, I thought that was very interesting as well. Oh, absolutely. It um, really reminded me of, of that novel Station Eleven when you have the, the touring theatre group doing uh, Shakespeare in a post-apocalyptic world. It, it was something very similar to that. That place really reminded me of it. Well, well talking, of, uh, talking of literary influences, tell us about your literary influences as we come to the end of the podcast. I mean, you... The, the writing is spectacular throughout this book. And I was just curious about, you know, when you were learning your craft as a writer, who you were influenced by and, and you know, who made them, what, what books and writers made the most impact on you? Oh, I think it's sort of two headed answer because, mm-hmm. uh, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm working in nonfiction and my background is as a journalist. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess looking to writers like Fred Pierce or Elizabeth Colbert, people who who produce these amazing works of environmental nonfiction. Um, nature writers too, as well, you know, people like Annie Dillard or um, Edward Abbey, Robert McFarlane, Helen MacDonald, people like that. And I think um, trying to pick through how they have made their nonfiction writing so vivid and sort of visceral. Um, and then the the other aspect, I suppose, I alluded to this earlier, but sort of science fiction or, or post-apocalyptic mm. fiction, which is maybe a, a personal passion of mine, and I realized as I was writing that that the two things were coming together and I could sort of allow um, my writing to feed off both of them mm. and try and find the appeal of these sort of fantastical landscapes um, or the writing about these fantastical landscapes and, and how to tie those two together. So that's what I was working very hard on, I think, especially in the later chapters when you get that sense of almost the world spiraling out of control. Mm. And do, do you, did you do you have any any rules? Did you set rules for yourself for writing? Because it's it it struck me as I was as I was reading the book that you know it's quite challenging to find new ways to describe decay and loss, and <laughs> and yet you do it brilliantly over and over again. Did you did you say did you set yourself any rules as a writer, or do you have rules for yourself as a writer? I don't use too many adjectives, or <laughs> only use adverbs on a Thursday, or something like that. <laughs> something like that. I had um. I had, I use a notes function on my phone a lot to write down either words that I think I should use to, to sort of change it up a little bit. Um, and also uh, another note which I used for the words that I thought I was using too much. So I, I think the worry was, and this was something I had to deal with when I was planning what locations I should include, the worry was that I should uh, find myself repeating the same story over and over you know this once was 
wonderful but then it fell into into mm. dissolution and now the trees have regrown you know that that narrative I, I just couldn't have that sort of playing and replaying throughout the book I had to find a a, a bigger bigger sort of structure to hang it all on a, a bigger storyline and b I just had to make sure that I wasn't using the same words over and over again and the same images and so on so I did have sort of watch words that you know descriptions that I thought I could use but I could only use in one place particularly mm -hmm. sort of powerful words or images um and that I then had to go back through and sort of weed them out from previous previous chapters um and I think partly also it was just writing the the rule I have for myself is when I sit down to my desk I write what I'm in the mood to write um so that then slowly but surely I start well not ticking things off but you start sort of chipping away at what be will become a big project so um i try to aim for say a thousand words in a day and I, I actually find that very difficult i'm quite a slow writer um and then i'll just write whatever seems most vivid or or whatever mood i'm in what does that match in in the book what that i know that i need to write a, a particular scene say and in that way i find it it sort of easy to to slowly chip away at it and, and begin to make some progress on a larger project but um I think that too helps if you're in the same mood during the day as you are in the book. It means that your your descriptions are maybe more vivid or or they're somehow easier to to come across and you might even think of something fresh. Generally I I take notes that I took at the time. I carry notebooks with me everywhere but they're usually just scrappy little sentences here and there or lists or or a lot of photographs. Um, so it's a it's a kind of mosaic you build up and try and figure out what order they need to come in and which ones you're going to include. <laughs> that was fascinating. <laughs> um, thank you. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. Uh, but I'd love to carry on the conversation. But unfortunately, we that's all the time we have for this episode. Thank you again so much, Cal, for joining us, and the very very best of luck with the next stage of the prize. That's very kind of you, and and yeah, I'm just absolutely delighted to be here. So um, thank you for having me on. And thank you again to the Lovatnik Family Foundation for their support of this podcast. Uh, do please make sure to subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at BG Prize for all the latest on our future episodes and news regarding the prize. You can also sign up for our newsletter through the website, which brings you updates straight into your inbox. The Bailey Gifford Prize rewards excellence in nonfiction writing and brings the best in intelligent reflection on the world. The winner of this prize, as I said at the top of the programme, will be announced this year on the 16th of November. Join us next time to explore the world of another of our shortlisted authors, Harold Yana, who will be telling us about his book, Aftermath. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Read Smart, the Baby Gifford Prize for non-fiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation and produced by Four Communications.